Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, we're crystal ball gazing. What will happen in 2022? Where and why? I don't think we're going to see a mass war, but I still think we have about a 30% chance that there will be fighting in Ukraine. We could start seeing blockades, attempts to cut off energy and food supplies, make life much more difficult in Taiwan. The most significant moment is the Queen's Jubilee, a national celebration, which of course the armed forces will be right at the heart of. As we enter 2022, our lives and the world are still dominated by COVID. But the last two years have shown as a pandemic does not stop conflict, instability and international power battles. So where should we be looking if we want to be one step ahead? Well, this week, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and Dr Mernie Garson, a lecturer in conflict resolution and international security at University College London, are here to help us navigate through the likely events of the next 12 months. Uh, first off, uh, could you both please just pick one country you think will matter most to the UK's defence and security this year and the one reason why? Melanie, let's start with you. Well, big question. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I would probably still go with China for a very writ large reason because everything from digital governance to underwriting technology and potentially how that interacts with conflict in China to the rising nuclear modernization. I think it's for overarching reasons still going to be the one of the most important countries to keep our eye on. Okay, plenty of reasons there then. Uh, Michael Clark, to you. Uh, Yeah, well, the most immediate uh, issue for us, I think, will still be Russia. Uh, President Putin is pushing against NATO. He's decided he can't live with NATO policy on enlargement any longer. And he's testing the transatlantic relationship. So I think the the pressure that Putin wants to put Western Europe and the transatlantic relationship under will be fairly unrelenting during the course of this year. Well, Ukraine starts 2022 heading into its eighth year of conflict. It's been in turmoil since a popular uprising led to the then president fleeing. The annexation of Crimea by Russia and then fighting between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed separatists in the eastern Donbass region. And as that conflict continues, a build-up of Russian forces close to the border has raised fears Moscow is about to launch an invasion. President Vladimir Putin has denied any such plan. Nonetheless, he's demanding NATO rules out Ukrainian membership of the alliance and also the removal of weaponry from Eastern Europe. Professor Mark Galliotti is a senior associate fellow at the defence think tank RUSI, where he specialises in Russian affairs. I asked him if we are going to see an invasion of Ukraine or war in the country this year. Oh, heavens. I mean, that's that's a big imponderable. I mean, I would say it's more likely that we won't, but it certainly can't be ruled out. We're the closest that we've been for a very long time. Really, it all hinges on, unfortunately, two imponderables. You know, we know what Putin's expressed Christmas wish list is, but he must also be fully aware how unrealistic it is. What we don't know is, shall we say, the minimum he's willing to accept and what risks he's willing to take to, to get there. So I don't think we're going to see a, a mass war. We're not going to see some attempt to take Kiev or whatever. But some kind of punitive military operation carried out by the Russians, really just to, to demonstrate to Kiev 
that Moscow can do this whenever it wants, that's still entirely on the table. Ukraine says Russia has massed 100,000 troops close to the border. Can we tell if those numbers are accurate? And also, what does close to the border actually mean? Well, that's actually a really important point because, I mean, some of these close to the border figures actually include, for example, forces that are really quite close to Moscow. So, you know, we have to treat it with with some caution. But on the other hand, although we could quibble over the precise numbers, there is ample evidence ranging from satellite photography to, frankly, the evidence from Russians on posting on social media pictures of convoys of tanks. So, yes, I mean, this is a serious and very real military build-up. And unlike previous ones, the teeth, the actually sort of attack forces, are backed up with a sufficient tail in terms, terms of logistics that this is a you know, a real force that absolutely, when given the orders, could roll into Ukraine. Of course, if Vladimir Putin wanted to invade Ukraine, he could have done it any time in the last eight years. So what is it that he really wants right now? We should realise that it's not about taking Ukraine militarily. Yes, absolutely. If, if that had been the goal, then frankly, 2014, 2015 would have been the ideal moment. So no, this is really about uh, political control. This is about demonstrating that Ukraine cannot break itself free from Moscow's overall domination. And what if Vladimir Putin doesn't get what he wants? Well, this is it. I mean, he he maintains his military forces in, in, in situ. Now, realistically, there are kind of windows of opportunity that open and close. At the moment, this is quite a good campaigning season because the ground is largely frozen. Come late February, instead, we're going to get the thaw and we're going to get sticky mud that gets in the way of offensive operations. Doesn't make it impossible, but certainly makes it a lot harder to, to run. The point is, Putin can keep his forces in there for quite some time if he's willing to pay the price. And how do you see this situation developing in 2022? This is the very big question. And to be honest, anyone who tells you that they know how this is going to play out is, is a charlatan. I mean, I think it all depends on the message that the Russians get from the substantive talks with the Americans and to a lesser extent with NATO that are taking place this month. If they feel there is real grounds for some kind of renegotiation of the, of the current situation, then I think they'll be satisfied with that. On the other hand, I think Putin has put too much of his own personal stake into this. And one of the things we do know about him is he's terrified of looking weak. So, I mean, I, I, I still think we have about a 30% chance that there will be fighting in Ukraine. Professor Mark Gagliotti there. And Melanie Garson, there are big talks planned for next week. Russia with the US, then NATO. Do you think this war of words can be resolved without spilling over into physical war? I think there's a lot put out there. Russia's tried to control the dialogue. They put out a couple of proposals out there which are hugely far-reaching, quite peremptory. There's a lot in there that will be rejected flat out. It's a sort of very Russian dynamic to try and control uh, the conversation. I don't think on the back of these initial talks we'd see any immediate flare-ups. I think all sides have said, well, certainly the US and alluding to a very unified stance of uh, NATO that they want to engage in meaningful and constructive dialogue, although they will be unified in their stance 
if Russia doesn't reciprocate with uh, sort of some level of principled diplomacy. So I don't think it'll be anything that will emerge immediately out of these set of talks. I think there'll be a lot of testing, a lot of questioning across the boundaries of uh, those proposals. And Michael Clark, Joe Biden seems to have taken US military action off the table, even if there were an invasion. The UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says it's highly unlikely anyone would send troops to Ukraine to challenge Russia. So what cards does the West hold here? Well, uh, more than people might think. I mean, what the West is saying to Putin is, look, we know that you could walk into Ukraine if you chose to, although the Ukrainians will put up some fairly stiff resistance, stiffer than they would have four or five years ago. But we know we can't stop that. But it won't be without consequences if you do. And the consequences would include pretty tough sanctions. But the most important thing I think that the West is saying and which Biden is saying to Putin is, look, if you do this, the effect will be against your life long-term interests, because actually we will just reinforce everybody else. Other, the Baltics want more uh, Western troops. We will actually reinforce in the Baltics. Sweden and Finland will, will quite likely then apply to join NATO, and we will take their applications very seriously. Um, we will actually put more uh, aid into Ukraine. I mean, if the Russians did move into Ukraine, it would be a major crisis in Europe. So the real argument that the West will be making is, look, don't do this because it's against your own real interest. And Melanie, Mark Galliotti talked about punitive Russian military operations rather than a full-on invasion. Many in Ukraine probably feel like they've been suffering those operations for years already, don't they? Absolutely. And I think we shouldn't underestimate in any way the hostility of the non uh, separative forces uh, towards Moscow altogether. I mean, from 2015, and I think one of the things that's being underestimated is the level of alternative warfare, cyber warfare that has been going on since the attack on the power grid and this sort of low level bubbling of attack on institutions. The US and the UK have been working working with the Ukrainian sort of cyber defence forces. But I think there's a lot of other ways that uh, the Ukraine have been feeling under pressure uh, over the last few years. It's not just suddenly emerged. Well, already 2022 has a new potential flashpoint in the world, Kazakhstan, where anti-government protests have spread rapidly in the past few days. Russian paratroopers are now reported to have arrived at the request of the Kazakh government. And Michael Clark, an uprising in another former Soviet state. How is this likely to play out? Uh, well, quite badly at the moment. I mean, it really is serious stuff because this is exactly what President Putin uh, fears. Another, you know, colour revolution of the sort that he, he witnessed in uh, Ukraine and Georgia and in, in other former Soviet states. Kazakhstan had never had anything like this. But there's some very important aspects to this crisis that's blown up in the last 48 hours or so. I mean, it starts off with protests over massive price rises. Very quickly, it becomes a national crisis. It's immediately violent. It doesn't, it doesn't start as civil protest. It starts as violence. And there is quite a lot of evidence that, that a lot of Kazakh troops have been turned out and police are going over to the demonstrators. And Putin, I think, has seen the, the, the problems. He's determined to snuff this out from the beginning. So Russian paratroopers already there this morning, apparently, uh, they are going to try to suppress this. But Kazakhstan is a very big country. It's as big as Western Europe. And how it will play out in the, the talks at the weekend between 
between Russia and America? I don't know, but it will really feature in them. I mean, this is a hole in the head problem for President Putin. Just when he thought he was in control of events uh, in ratcheting up the issue on Ukraine, he's got this real hole in the head problem of Kazakhstan, which seems to have come out of nowhere from his point of view. Well, 5,000 miles from Ukraine, another country is warning it's under threat from a much bigger neighbour. Taiwan is living in fear of China, which claims the island nation should rightfully be part of the communist giant. The Taiwanese president has warned the threat is growing every day, perhaps a blockade of its harbours, perhaps even an invasion. Could that happen in 2022? The Daily Telegraph's Asia correspondent Nicholas Smith is in Taiwan's capital, Taipei. Life is normal. Uh, we've just had Christmas. Everyone's looking forward to Lunar New Year at the end of this month. Um, they're more worried about the uh, Omicron variant breaching Taiwan's border controls than they are about a Chinese invasion. But that said, I don't want to underestimate how people are feeling in the medium to long term. It's definitely on people's consciousness that China could be planning a move against Taiwan in a few years' time. And Today, the Taiwanese military took a lot of journalists to an Air Force base to, to demonstrate their wartime preparedness drills. They were scrambling their F-16 jets and they were showing us how they would respond to a Chinese invasion. And, and this is the, the air base that has been responding to all of the Chinese uh, military uh, warplanes that have been coming into Taiwan's air defence zone over the past year. And there have been over 950 of those sorties over the past year. So the very fact that the Taiwanese military saw as necessary to take lots of local media shows that they want to reassure the public that they are thinking about how to counter this aggression. And Nicola, why has China's rhetoric on Taiwan become more aggressive recently? Is it about the disputed sovereignty or is Taiwan just a pawn caught in the rising tensions between the US and China? Well, there's no doubt that Taiwan is to an extent a proxy for tensions between the US and the West and China, and it has been to a certain extent for, for decades. But Taiwan is more than just a pawn. For a start, it has its own agency. It's, it's a democracy of 23.5 million people, um, and it has its own uh, territorial and historical disputes with China. And it's important to remember that um, the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled in, in, in Taiwan. You ask, why is China so ag aggressive just now? And that's because it's very, this is a very personal issue for Xi Jinping. It's very much, um, part of his own political legacy. Um, it's linked to his political ideology of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He has also been emboldened in recent years by his successful crackdown in Hong Kong. And he has, he's been building up his military um, to rival US forces in the Indo-Pacific, which has given him a lot more confidence to, to be so bold on Taiwan. You mentioned Hong Kong. Of course, Taiwan's watched China's grip tighten on Hong Kong over the last couple of years. Will that tighten further this year or does Beijing think it's gone far enough for now? I do think it will tighten further. I think Beijing wants to make an example out of Hong Kong because of the protests that turned the city upside down in 2019. Um, and I think Beijing will keep going until it, it strangles out any kind of dissent in, in Hong Kong. And just to return to Taiwan, what are the chances of China making a move this year, do you think? I think the chances this year are minimal. 
But that's not to talk down the, the size and nature of the threat. Uh, Taiwan's defence minister in October said that, that China would be capable of a full-scale invasion by 2025 um, and that relations were at their worst in 40 years. And I, I think we also need to look at different measures that um, China could use. We could start seeing blockades, attempts to cut off energy and food supplies, make life much more difficult in Taiwan. Um, and we're already seeing Beijing putting pressure on Taiwanese companies who are doing business in China to, to cut ties with pro-democratic parties or politicians who, who rely on business funding during election time. This is all intended um, to undermine Taiwanese society and it's not as visible as a, a full-scale invasion on the beaches. That was Nicholas Smith in Taipei. Uh, Michael Clark, what is the risk that China's ever more robust words on Taiwan might turn into some kind of action this year? Well, I think, as Nicholas said, it's not likely to be uh, some sort of overt military action because China isn't quite ready for that yet. I mean, Taiwan's defences are pretty robust. And although, of course, China could invade Taiwan if it wanted to, it would need quite big forces to do that to do that. And Western intelligence would see those forces getting ready and massing and becoming prepared. So a bolt from the blue attack is not really very feasible. But uh, China clearly wants to put as much pressure on Taiwan as possible. And it will probably try to ramp up that pressure with more military incursions into airspace and sea space in order to normalize it. What the Chinese want to do is to create the situation where it seems normal, however much the Taiwanese government in Taipei protests about it. It, it seems normal that Chinese military uh, assets should be around Chi around Taipei's airspace and sea space. And all of that, of course, is, is designed to test U.S. resolve to see really how determined the United States are to defend Taiwan. Because the Chinese want, are playing a deterrent game as well. And they're really saying to the Americans, look, if you really think that you're going to defend Taiwan, just think what it might involve if we really get serious about military action sometime time in the future. Melanie Garson, this goes beyond Taiwan. Beijing's sovereignty claims also take in parts of the South China Sea where the UK carrier strike group sailed last year. Beijing has been building its military power. Does it actually want to use it or is it just for show? As you rightly say, this is a lot bigger and this is about Beijing's sphere of influence within a very changing geopolitical system with this return to big power politics asserting its power over where their kind of vision of a space where nations are sovereign but deferential to China, ranging from the Kiril Islands past Taiwan through to the South China Sea, and very much as part of uh, China seeing it as vital to its growth and its security and part of developing itself as a world naval power. Mm. Um, do I think they're going to use it at the moment? Unlikely, but as you know, we saw in 2001 when there's a lot of posturing, uh, particularly you know with warplanes and warships back and forth. Uh, there's a risk of collisions and or mishaps, mm. and that took a long time to step back from and could have more devastating consequences. Well, just a couple of days ago, China signed up to a statement by the world's five biggest nuclear powers on preventing an arms race or nuclear war. The US, though, says China is growing its nuclear arsenal. Beijing says no, it's merely modernising it. Uh, Michael Clark, are their words and actions contradictory? 
Uh, well, they're not very consistent. Uh, I mean, Ch- China is developing its nuclear technologies and its nuclear weapons to the level that will be comparable with Russia and America, which is to say that they're going from some low hundreds of weapons up to a thousand or fifteen hundred at least, and quite likely beyond that. The Chinese have always said that they would not take part in any nuclear arms control talks, and they've always stayed out of them. But now that we we've got to think in terms of global nuclear arms control involving at least America, Russia. And China together, but they will not enter the discussion properly until they feel that their nuclear forces are about the size or even bigger than America's and Russia's. And that will take some time yet. Now, let's take a look at what else may happen in 2022 in some other countries around the world. And seeing as we've been talking about nuclear weapons, uh, Michael Clark, Iran, will the deal limiting its capability to get a nuclear weapon be saved this year? Uh, probably not. Uh, a few months ago, we'd have said, yes, it was quite likely to come back this year because the Iranians really need the deal to get sanctions lifted. But they've stepped back from it for a series of religious ideological reasons and because of their own electoral processes. And the Americans are saying, well, we're not going to bend too far. You know, we can afford to wait, which is true. So the prospects are not very good. And Iran is trying to develop enough usable weapons grade uranium to make a few weapons. The Israelis and the Americans will keep attacking Iran to degrade it. And Melanie, several African countries are on your watch list, most notably Ethiopia. What's going on there and how concerning is it? Well, Ethiopia is a sad story. It's a difficult one. It was a good news story a couple of years ago with the 2018 uh, peace deal with Eritrea, but we've had a year of solid fighting between the federal army and uh, forces in the North Tigray region. It's a conflict that's very much over the Tigray people, the Liberation Front, over their what they're seeing is encroachment on their rights to be able to self-govern but what we've seen is it's also been drawing in other states into the conflict so uh, Eritrea came in in support of the central Ethiopian government and uh, we've had seen millions uprooted there's tens of thousands dead already the social fabric of Ethiopia's being pulled apart Uh, there's a desperate need for humanitarian aid and as I say, there's always risks of spillover there, mm. so it would need to be closely watched. And Michael, you mentioned Mali when we spoke at the end of last year. It's mostly disappeared from the headlines since the 2013 Islamist insurgency was pushed back from the capital. Why is it on your list for 2022? <laughs> well, because it's such a terrible mess. I mean, there was a military coup there in uh, August 2020. There was another military coup in um, May last year. The French have withdrawn now. They've completed their withdrawal from northern Mali, where they were trying to help in terms of snuffing out the Islamic insurgency. There is a, a MINUSMA force, that is a, Uni- a United Nations force. So there's 5,000 French troops, there's 4,000 UN troops. There's a British contingent helping the UN. There's a European force force there. And the present military government in Mali is refusing any other military aid from Western powers, even though it wouldn't have to pay for it, 
because it's turning to Russia. The Wagner private security group is already involved now advising the government of Mali. Basically, the Malians of uh, the Malian military government have turned to Russia. And so it's a terrible, terrible mess. And the Europeans, as normal, are getting their fingers burned in a country that is impossible to control or impossible to organize unless the government, the central government, is a competent group. And this central government is a, is a bunch of young military leaders who don't know the first thing about running a country. And Melanie, insurgency is also affecting Mozambique. Yeah, I think um, Mozambique's representative of sort of one of the areas that have been a little bit forgotten off people's radar screens over the last year, which is the continued sort of Islamic state-associated um, insurgencies that are not just in Mozambique, but across Africa. Again, a million people have been displaced, and Mozambique that traditionally resisted any outside involvement accepted assistance from Rwanda, from uh, the South African development community. And with the involvement of those other two entities, we're risking another protracted war. Michael, uh, Sudan is still balancing on a knife edge after October's coup. The Prime Minister just resigned. How worried should we be about the situation there? Well, it's certainly not a good situation, but I'm a little bit hopeful about Sudan. In a way, it's one step forward, two steps back, because Abdullah Hamdok, the uh, prime minister, resigned because he couldn't eventually hold a deal together with the military. General Alburhan really was too uncompromising. So uh, Hamdok has resigned. And in a way, the whole thing's gone back to demonstrations on the streets against a military government that has promised elections in 2023, but nobody believes them. And I don't think they should believe them. But I'm a little bit hopeful because that sort of democratic urge uh, among the people of Sudan. And again, Sudan is a pretty big and important country. That democratic urge is impossible to suppress. And the military know they can't do it themselves. So again, it's this military incompetence. The military are hopeless. Military all, all over the world are hopeless at running governments. It's not what they're trained for and they're useless. Um, and their, their uselessness, their hopelessness, I think is probably clear to them and so I'm a little bit hopeful that there may be another way forward, but the situation will get worse before it gets better in Sudan. But I'm a little bit hopeful that it will get better during the course of the year. And finally, Afghanistan. Uh, Melanie, how much time, effort and attention will it get from the UK and its allies now the Taliban are back in power and Western troops are out? I think there's a huge tension for the West because, look, Afghanistan's tanking. The government can't pay its civil servants. It's the financial sector's paralysed. It's got other threats. And Western decision makers are going to have to come together and look at the best way to deal with the plight of the 23 million people who are likely to suffer from extreme conditions there. And that can, there's a range of options. I mean, some of the uh, international uh, financial institutions have released uh, some of the two billion disbursements that are supposed to be going to Afghanistan. But it's going to be a real tension of thinking about how to work with the Taliban or what is the best way to be able to prop up basic services health and education and how bridge the sort of ideological tension and gap uh, to ensure that the humanitarian crisis there doesn't escalate to uh, sort of unpalatable proportions. Now, what about the UK in 2022? The most significant moment is the Queen's uh, Jubilee. And I think that will be a wonderful moment for the nation to come together next June 
with a whole series of events in the in the lead up to at, to that, and then a big uh, celebration, a national celebration, which of course the armed forces and the Royal Air Force will be right at the heart of. The Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston. Uh, Michael, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is certainly going to keep the armed forces busy with ceremonial duties, but how busy will they be operationally? Well, they're, they're due to be very busy in terms of preparing for the new roles that the Integrated Review suggested for them. Uh, we've got these regional land hubs being developed. We've got the um, Security Assistance Force being created, the Intervention Forces, these small Ranger Regiments. And so I think that the Armed Forces will find themselves being rapidly reorganised so that they can be persistently engaged around the world. But they will, I think, find next year quite trying because there's no shortage of crises out there. They are trying to reorganise for the 2020s and they will have, as Mike Wigson said, a pretty big ceremonial role and they'll want to make sure that that ceremonial role goes without any hitches whatsoever because that's one of the things that really matters both to them and to the British public that we, we say to ourselves we're really, really good at this and we've got to prove it again next year. Melanie, if the UK's armed forces were to be sent on a new deployment this year, where in the world are they most likely to be sent? Oh, that's such a hard one. And part of me wants to deflect it and actually think about that there's particularly following the cyber strategy 2022 and sort of some of the intimations of the integrated review that we're looking at, uh, if we're looking at deployment, it could take a very, very different shape. And uh, particularly looking at how... uh, we look at offensive cyber and defensive cyber activity and do we are we going to think about deployment differently in some respect if we're really looking at boots on the ground one of the areas we've sort of although we've discussed the wider impact of Iran in the stability of the Middle East and potential spillover I'm loath to say possibly back to Iraq but I think there is still work to be done there that it's critical to defending uh, some of those Middle East uh, alliances so could be but uh, um, I'm hoping not. Watch this space what a thought. Dr Melanie Garson thank you Professor Michael Clark thank you so much that's it for this week thank you to all of our guests you can keep in touch with us on Twitter we're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast for now though from me Kate Chabot thank you for listening and goodbye (laughs) 